Hello and welcome to White Swan, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw, and on this podcast, we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan, you can keep things turning. We're about to hear a fantastic interview with Emma Tottenham of Virgin Money. But before that, we're joined by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland uh, from Hanover in the UK. Uh, Karen, Gary, welcome. Thank nice you. To Great to be here. Now, Emma sets out how she has risen to the top table within Virgin Money uh, and find her voice around that table. When you walk into a crisis situation, you've got to find your voice and get credibility around the table incredibly quickly, which is tough to do. Karen, how do you approach that? Yeah, I think communications is a very important part of the C-suite. I feel very fortunate in my career. I spent a number of time, a lot of time working in government at the table with the deputy minister and cabinet minister and you know, these are people that really care about reputation. And so, you know, very open to communications and have an understanding of the impact that we have. You know, when we translate that into the boardroom and we're talking about the executive table, I think we need to be speaking in a language that they understand. And so talking about the impact that reputation has on the bottom line of an organization. We can use case study example, social intelligence to actually demonstrate the impact of an incident that's having on an organization. I think as communicators, we do our best work when we're part of decision making. We can help identify risks. We can demonstrate impact on reputation. And we can also bring that perspective of how stakeholders are going to react to a situation and what impacts that may have on the bottom line of an organization. You know, when we think about crisis, many of them are incidents that weren't anticipated, planned for, properly managed. And we can play a key role in that for sure. How about you, Gary? Yeah, I mean, I think we've all been in those rooms. And I think at the outset, often what people are looking for in those first moments uh, is clarity. Clarity in terms of the advice you're given, but also clarity in terms of who you are, the rules and responsibilities and where you're adding value. I think you know we we talk about this like these are all all smooth running machines we've all been in those situation rooms in the first five minutes and effectively often it's 25 people staring at each other um in a slight panic as to what's going to happen next and obviously you know they will be well chaired and there will be good leaders but I think, in a, you know, someone coming in, particularly from an agency background, somebody who is external as a consultant, I think, you know, the onus is on us to say quite clearly from the beginning, this is what my role is. This is what we're going to bring. This is how we can use, you know, particularly communications in order to help you deal with this. And that's communications in a crisis is interesting because it, it works in a number of ways. I think through kind of monitoring and social media, we're able um, to give, you know, a line of information and data into how the crisis is unfolding and how the response is being received. But also communications is something which obviously has an impact on that response itself. And I think you can see, uh, you know, in some crises, business leaders who are kind of, who feel that communications is something that they shouldn't focus on because they're focusing on the operational aspect of what they're trying to do. And I think our role is to show them how they need to communicate that effectively to a wide range of stakeholders, not just media, if actually they're going to, 
uh, reap the benefits of the strategy they're putting in place. Uh, and I think that definition of rules, responsibilities, um, and competency, as well as a general sense of calm. If we're crisis professionals, we tend to have been through this more than certainly the communications teams in many of the uh, situations that we're dealing with. Um, and I think at that point, honestly, I think people are willing to listen because I think people are looking for information that's going to help them make smarter decisions. Is that what you find, Karen? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, when Emma was talking about trusting your judgment, and I think, you know, you can collect data, you can have the insights. Um, but one of the things when you're working with an external consultant is, you know, for people like you, Gavin, Gary, and myself, we tend to go from crisis to crisis. And so we bring this breadth of experience. We've seen how these incidents have played out within many organizations. And we're not in fear of losing our job if we give direct and very bold counsel. And so, you know, for organizations that are navigating a crisis, a lot of times, you know, we can bring a, an external perspective, but also a depth of experience to help inform decision making yeah and at times even if required step in and sort of lead it in terms of making sure the operational aspects of the crisis room are functioning properly which i think is what you were kind of saying gary isn't it absolutely right well look that's fantastic let's hear from emma Each episode of White Swan will feature an in-depth conversation with a senior figure from the world of business, so we get to learn about their crisis experience and the lessons you need to hear. Our guest on this show is Emma Tottenham, Group Corporate Communications and Sustainability Director at Virgin Money. Emma has been at Virgin Money since 2017 and has a background in financial services strategy, both at Virgin Money and previously at RBS. Her role now involves the internal and external communications agenda for Virgin Money, as well as driving the bank's sustainability agenda. Emma, thanks for joining us on White Swan, the crisis podcast. Hi, Gavin, and thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to our chat. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Now, Emma, you've got a fantastic CV. You're in a very senior position at Virgin Money. How did you get to that role? And what's been your journey to uh, get to the current position you have? Uh, and what does it actually involve on a day-to-day -day basis? Lots of questions to start off with then. So uh, I grew up, I went to school, as many of us do. <laughs> I, I went on to read physics at university. So there's my first confession that I'm a science geek at heart. And after that, without giving it a whole lot of thought, I rolled into financial services on a graduate program. And that was largely because I didn't want to go into academia and a few other people I knew had already trodden that path. So I sort of found myself there. I hopped quite quickly from one graduate program at Standard Life to finishing it off at RBS, um, which was just a better cultural fit for me. And when that came to an end, I moved into a group strategy team at RBS or the group strategy team at RBS and stayed there for quite a number of years, actually. So doing a variety of different strategy roles, working my way up slowly. Um, and I think I got to the point where I'd realized that the thing that really gets me out of bed in the morning as I got more senior was definitely the ability to be part of decision-making and the ability to see the bigger picture of what was going on. And that's probably some of my physics problem solving coming through there. But that kind of drove the decision to look at other opportunities, maybe at, at smaller organizations where you could get a bit more 
deeply involved in the direction of travel for a company. And so I moved from RBS to what was then CYBG to take on senior strategy role there. And about a year into that, uh, we started on the acquisition of Virgin Money. So I was reasonably heavily involved in the acquisition process. And as that was coming to an end, the CEO asked me to take on a new role as chief of staff for him. And that also came with it a, a few tag on responsibilities, namely for the whole sustainability agenda for both of the banks, which was at that time more of an emerging agenda than it is now. But even back then, I got a real sense of the acceleration that was going on in that space and the increasing profile. Um, so that was, I mean, that was a huge shift for me going from strategy, which, yep, absolutely long hours, hard work, but a lot of thinking time to then go into the drumbeat of the all encompassing chief of staff role and the trying to wrap my head around this major new agenda and, and build a strategy for that, for the combined group that took the component parts of what came with each of the two banks. And some of those in themselves were quite big. So Virgin Money came with the brilliant not-for-profit digital fundraising platform, Virgin Money Giving. So I, I sort of inherited a, an end-to-end -end business in its own right as well. And without having much time to wrap my arms around that piece, uh, not long after, we decided to consolidate all of the communications activities that were happening in a few different areas across the, the new combined group. So that's the point when I officially joined the executive leadership team at Virgin Money and embarked on creating the function that I run today, which is corporate communications and sustainability. And I am about a year into that now. So I guess in terms of your other questions on what that involves day to day, um, it, it's relatively typical as a corporate affairs, corporate comms role. So we've got internal comms, media relations, public affairs, uh, and then obviously the whole sustainability and ESG agenda, which is huge and keeps getting bigger. Um, but, you know, that that's a bit of a whirlwind of uh, a CV tour. If I think a bit more about the how I got that experience of such a whirlwind career to date, it probably boils down to maybe two or three things. So the first one, of course, you have to have the right people around you and um, they need to support you. They need to let you into the right meetings, let you flourish and um, let you sort of put your hand up for things. And I've been hugely lucky on that front. But then I think the other elements are, although I'm naturally an introvert, naturally quite shy, that tends to fade away when I'm focused on a problem or something of an academic nature. And I think that's allowed me to stick my neck out a bit uh, in certain career situations or um, sort of work opportunities. And the other, the other bit probably is that I tend to see people in the workplace as just people. So we're all in different jobs that are of different sort of scales and specialisms and some are narrow and technical and others are broad and leadership but at the end of the day we're all people with different skill sets and personalities and I think that's been incredibly helpful in just having good 
conversations across the business without really being too preoccupied about hierarchies or positions. So I, I guess a combination of those things I'd probably credit to the sort of whirlwind roller coaster that feels like my career has been when I look back over the last few years. It's incredibly impressive. And, you know, joining a senior executive team for the first time is always daunting for many people out there. From the off, did you sort of say, this is my role on this team, you know, beyond the the official role that you had in terms of the culture, in terms of the questions you would ask, in terms of the challenge you would give? Did you think about that in advance? Do you think this is the way I'm going to ensure I fit in and I have a voice? You know what? I don't think I really did. So I think there were some teething problems early on, and that's where it comes back to having that buy-in and support from a few critical people is incredibly important. Because my job was so huge for me at that time, and there was so much to wrap my head around, I was very preoccupied with doing that part well. And I don't think I gave the as much focus as I could have done on trying to land the transition well enough. Now, I sort of corrected that um, quite quickly and, and spent a lot more time focusing on building relationships, on being really clear about where this new function fits in, how it adds value, where I have a voice versus where I don't. But I think if I'm being completely honest, I definitely didn't get it right from, from the word go. That's great. And it's very honest. I think a lot of people will be interested to hear that. Now, the new role that you have encompasses crisis communications as well. For yourself, what's your view on a crisis? How do you define a crisis within Virgin Money uh, as opposed to an issue that's happening every day or every week? So that is a good question. And I think an important one working in comms, because if you draw the line wrong between an issue and a crisis, you're probably going to burn out and burn your team out very, very quickly. Um, I think it was Henry Kissinger that said, we can't have a crisis next week. My schedule's already full. So we we are quite careful in, in where we draw that line, because particularly as a bank, um, there are things that bubble up day in, day out. And so probably my view of what an issue is versus a crisis, I would Think about an issue as something that maybe sparks a bit of discussion, debate. There's maybe an element of tension or dispute within that. But it's not going to risk on its own fundamentally undermining the fabric of an organization's reputation. And that, to me, is where the crisis territory lies. And I think the other thing with, with drawing the line between a crisis and an issue is Consistently, I mean, if you look up the definition of a crisis, which I did my homework and did do before this podcast, there's always that element of a tipping point, a turning point, a sort of live or die moment, or we're probably not all that important in business. So a, a sort of thrive or really struggle for a while point. And that's probably another sign that you're more in crisis territory than, than just standard issues management. I think the only caveat to that um, and where comms can come in particularly is often there will be a number of unrelated issues that could ladder up to become a crisis. And I think certainly in my role and, and 
in the work that my team does alongside me, our judgment in trying to spot those trends is incredibly important because we get to see everything that goes on across the organization, not just the finished products that make it to the market. We, we sort of understand how they're made, the decisions that take place, and that allows us to, to spot those early trends of, of what might tip into crisis territory. That's really interesting. So you're actually looking at the gaps that are out there in terms of how you set up and seeing where the crises may come. Uh, how do you do that, though? Because I guess just like you've learned to operate at the senior executive level, you're trying to get your teams to learn how to raise their voice, to push people in other departments on operational aspects that they think could become a media or a crisis communications issue for you. How do you do that, though? How do you engender that spirit within the team to raise their voice instead of just letting it go? It's a tricky one because it comes down to quite a few different factors and it's it's actually it's been quite a live focus area for us in the team at Virgin Money over the last little while there is a risk always with comms teams even with good comms teams I guess that they can feel a bit like the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff sometimes and trying to flip that around and really be part of the early discussions with different business areas to have people wanting to come to you to get your opinion on whether, you know, how something might play out in the external environment or internally with colleagues is really critical. So we've done a lot of work to try and build strong ties in with the different business areas. And we've put also through um, the kind of COVID crisis, we've actually put a few different structures in place. I'm not going to call them governance because they're very definitely governance with a small g, if that at all. But um, we ran a comm cell during the COVID pandemic early stages, and that was a brilliant way of just flushing out everything that was going on across the business and bringing it together into one place. And so we've we've kept the comm cell going, and it's something that I chair on a weekly basis with a lot of the senior people across the business. Uh, and we have just really open, far-reaching conversations about what's coming down the line, where there might be issues. Um, so I think that's that's a big progress at, at sort of that level. Within the team as well, there is a huge focus on empowering them and making them know that we've got their backs to try and stand up and challenge things, um, to do that in the right way, but to know that there isn't, you know, raising your hand, calling out an issue is absolutely something that we want to listen to and want to have the discussion about uh, has been another kind of bit of a mindset shift over the last year or so. It's uh, it's really interesting that pulling the senior team together on a regular basis with you. And we've seen other businesses do that very effectively, particularly during the COVID crisis. It was an excuse to do it. Do you think it has changed perceptions amongst the senior team alongside you in terms of your comms setup? I think it's done two things. It's, it's raised awareness and understanding of how much we are involved in and how much we can help, I guess, from the early stages rather than throwing something over the line and saying we need a press release or we need an internal message out to colleagues. I think it's also given me and my team better ability to forward plan the strategic comms agenda. So we've just been through a 
group strategy refresh, which is incredibly helpful. So I'm, I'm sort of sitting here today with a really clear view of what our core messages are next year, what our strategic narrative is, and what the proof points will be along the way as they as they drop in and deliver. And the comm cell structure is really helpful at keeping that up to date. And that in turn, I guess, when I when I sit around the leadership table or go in to talk to the board, helps me have that really broad, strategic, full, up-to-date picture of what's going on and what it exactly it is that we're doing within the communications team to add value to that agenda. Which is great. It's great to hear that. Now, look, in terms of the crisis planning that you have within the organization, how do you set up and uh, do you do regular practices of crisis scenario, things like that? We do. Um, and I suspect all of the organizations that you will be te- speaking to do. Um, it's one of those muscles that you really need to keep well trained and flexible. That said, it is a really easy thing to let slip when there is a lot of other stuff on the agenda. We're quite fortunate in the bank. We have a very well-oiled incident management machine and we get a lot of opportunity to practice that because a bank is a a complex organization and so there are often a few different things that might be going wrong um, at different levels of materiality. So they have a a sort of brilliantly rigorous process of incident levels, they know exactly what teams they convene, they manage that and even the sort of agendas of those meetings hugely rigorously Um, and I think that helps everybody feel very secure in exactly what their role is to play when it comes to a convening of a bronze incident, a gold incident, whatever it might be and makes sure that every voice is heard around the table and also makes sure that um, that that um, muscle keeps getting used reasonably regularly. And we do also, I mean, of course, we we have the kind of scenario, crisis scenario sessions a couple of times a year um, to, to try and work those through, but tend to find the live versions are better than the desktop versions in trying to keep that, trying to keep us fit in that space. But I think for us at Virgin Money, because we're going through so much change at the moment with the integration of the two banks. One of the things I've actually found is just doing the the diligent homework is really important. So, of course, you've got playbooks, but are they as up to date as they can be? For us, certainly, we we've got to do that really regularly as teams change, as team structures change, and what you don't want to do is let yourself down by having people running around trying to contact the right person and and not being able to. And we had an IT incident, actually, uh, a sort of relatively minor one between Christmas and New Year last year, when many of the usual people involved in incident management were actually off on holiday, abroad, uncontactable. Those were the days that we could go abroad, (laughs) looking back. And that was a hugely informative one because a couple of things did go wrong. It wasn't as slick as it could have been. We didn't have the, the right early warnings in we didn't get the right comms out to update the board and things like that. So that was a, a real step back and make sure that we plan for those backdrops where 
you know, you just don't expect there to be a crisis when everything's a bit quiet between Christmas and New Year and everybody's off on holiday. But if you've planned for that, then you should hopefully be in a good place when it happens in a business as usual environment. How did you do that review of what had happened and what had gone well and what hadn't gone so well afterwards? Did you bring everyone together? Was it you leading it? So it was it was back to our heroic incident management team. Um, they do a post-incident review after... I think every incident, certainly everything that, that tips into a silver or a gold incident. But that was actually something that the earliest trigger was social media activity. So we did a bit of a separate review off the back of the PIR that the team did in the comm space. Because what we had with social media was obviously an awareness that that can be an early warning indicator, but we didn't have the frameworks around it that would help us make the right judgment calls as to when it genuinely is showing you that something's going awry. So that was another one actually that we've updated within the last year, I guess, um, is, is how we approach social media and what support we can give to the people on the ground who are monitoring those channels who will see some trends early doors so that they can flag up the up the chain of command and and also use their own judgment to figure out whether that is actually a sign of an underlying problem. Now I know you believe that being proactive uh, is much better than being reactive from a comms and a reputation uh, focus. What systems do you have in place at Virgin Money to enable you to be as proactive as possible and to provide an early warning uh, system uh, so you can get ahead of things? I mean, I think I would go back to the point around a big reliance on having that full view across the organization of what's going on and having faith and confidence in your own judgment and that of your team to be able to pick out those subtleties that other people might miss because they don't have quite the same all-encompassing view and quite that same real mirror to how that would play out um, to different stakeholder groups to be able to flag things. If I even take a step back further from that, I think the way that I've come to look at it, probably because of the sustainability element to my role, is that an organization's purpose, values, and sort of sustainability or ESG agenda play a pretty critical role, actually, in in trying to both prevent, but also get real genuine early warnings, sort of five years out of when something might be coming down the track as an issue. If an organization has the right purpose, it has the right set of values, the right focus on people and planet, not just profit, and has been able to embed that really deeply, fundamentally across the business into its culture, then theoretically, there should be very few things that come up for any comms team to worry about or to to cause issues for any business leaders in terms of reputational or crisis risk. And that level of prevention, that kind of deep embedded trying to do good in an organization, I think is, is hugely better than cure. And if a crisis does arise and something like a black swan, or I should call it a white swan, shouldn't I, happens, 
then it's much, much more likely that that gets turned into the opportunity side of a crisis rather than becoming a real long running issue that's going to hamper the organisation. What's music to my ears, prevention is always better than cure, isn't it? And particularly uh, as you talk about sustainability and doing the right thing, frankly, you know, people will trust you better. Trust metrics will be up and uh, you will absolutely um, move through a crisis faster than you would if they were low. It's funny because the FT editorial board back in October 2019 talked about how there's a growing acceptance amongst business leaders the need to broaden the pursuit of shareholder value to include inclusivity, sustainability, and purpose. And it sounds like you've done that. It sounds like that's where you're focusing in. And you're not only seeing it as a positive thing for the way you run things, but you're seeing it as a proactive step to protect the organization in the long term. Yeah, it's it's absolutely right. And I, you know, I'm not resting on my laurels because I think we are on the journey there as as most organizations probably are but I do think it's a really valuable set of responsibilities to have alongside the communications aspects it really helps to focus in on that long-term view and gives more influence I guess over the long-term direction of the organization to, to genuinely kind of push through that doing the right thing mantra the different aspects of ESG touches on so many different areas that are helpful here. So if I pull a couple of examples, you know, diversity, having a diverse group of individuals around a decision-making table who are from different backgrounds, they are different genders, they are of different race, have different experiences. That gives you a range of viewpoints that's actually reflective of the customer base and society. Now, that's very much a part of the ESG agenda, right? But but equally, it is just the, the long-term sustainability of a company and, and its ability to, to try and do the right thing. If I think about the, the climate crisis, the biggest crisis facing humankind at the moment, arguably, having the right consideration for the long-term environmental impact is absolutely critical and not, you know, definitely not just for financial services, for every organization out there. So having the ability to sort of build that into our strategy will definitely, you know, if we start doing things now that will help us to do less harm, then we are heading in the right direction for something that is is coming down the track to be one of the hardest crises that we have to get through together. And then, you know, on the social side, having that lens on those who are most vulnerable in society, either customers or society more broadly and making sure that the decisions that you're making now aren't closing doors for them either now or in the future and even like even the the boring g element of esg the governance piece making sure that there aren't decisions that are being made that are material that aren't exposed to that right rigor of purpose values esg all of the the sort of good stuff I've just been talking about is is just as critical as well in trying to prevent things that will come down and bite you as a crisis at some point. I guess you have to be the the sort of referee round the top table to make sure these things are happening if that's an area that you are focused in on. Um, do is there unanimous support for doing this type of thing round that top table, or do you have to still raise your voice? 
There's an element of refereeing uh, and challenge because I don't think it's really innately built into everybody yet, particularly a lot of the environmental stuff. There's, there's a lot to try and wrap your head around and there's a lot of other stuff going on that we need to focus on too. So an element of refereeing, the way that I see this working best is if we can do something with ESG as we've done with purpose. So it's all about trying to help people understand how they can own the agenda, how they can feel genuine responsibility and accountability for it, and can understand it well enough to drive it through in their own business areas. Because being able to influence and work together with people in that way is a lot more powerful than having to keep holding up the red flag when you are blocking them from doing something that might make very good commercial sense and therefore something that on paper could be a good thing to do and, and you're seen more as a sort of a blocker or a naysayer that the sort of softly softly um let's make this everybody's shared problem approach definitely sits better with my personality now when things haven't gone so well and you've been unable to prevent something happening so for instance if we go back to last christmas between christmas and new year what's the one thing you're telling yourself to stay sane in the middle of a crisis what's your crisis mantra Am I allowed two things? Because I probably have two. And I actually, during during COVID, even ended up writing them on post-it notes. So <laughs> I haven't just made them up. So I've got something to say for this. The first is you can only do as much as you can do. And everyone working in comms knows how incredibly frantic and busy and exhausting dealing with a crisis can be. So that is my number one. And my number two is trust your judgment and those around you because you need to fulfill your role and and try not to feel like you have to also fulfill everybody else's roles. But equally, you're not always going to be sitting there looking at all the facts and a perfect set of data to make decisions. But you, you are who you are and you can only do what you can do. And there are only so many hours in the day that you can do them. And so... Those two things, I think, help me be a bit kinder and a bit more forgiving to myself in a crisis, particularly if it's one that drags on for some time. Those are great lessons. Now, um, what do you turn to in a crisis to get away from it all? Is it a book or is it a film, a TV uh, show or a walk with the dogs? What, what's your thing you do to sort of get away from it all for a moment? So I have to walk the dog because otherwise um, I would feel terrible terrible person um but that but sometimes that can be quite stressful actually knowing that you're sort of letting some something else down another creature down whilst also trying to juggle the impossible at work the thing i mean ultimately this isn't very highbrow but the thing that i actually do when the proverbial is hitting the fan is to watch rerun episodes of Friends because they are short. They can take my mind off things for half an hour. I know all the jokes. I know exactly what's going to happen. And it's just that sort of comfort blanket of trash that um, helps you just walk away from all the rest of the stuff that's going on. I love that. But you do at times just need to get away from it and not think. And watching something like that where you know what's going to happen as well because you're so used to it and seen it before is integral. And what do you have to eat or drink in those moments? Is it a cup of tea or something stronger? Uh, or, well, I mean, something stronger is a bit dangerous when it's really going 
badly because you tend not to be getting that much sleep <laughs> or that much time away from your computer. Um, tea, definitely. There's something a bit like the friends routine, I guess. There's something really important about that tiny little pit stop that you get to go away and boil the kettle and and make a cup of tea. I'm sounding like an old woman here, but um, it it does again give you that five minute step away from things and mini cheddars because I. I can't hold my hand up and say I'm particularly good to myself when things all go wrong and cook myself healthy suppers and make sure I get loads of exercise. No, I uh, drink tea, eat packets of crisps, mini cheddars particularly, and occasionally step away and watch half an hour of Friends and subsist <laughs> on that sort of a diet of, um, yeah, things that aren't brilliant for me until, until I can get a bit of a reset. Emma, thanks so much. We're going to end on that bombshell of mini cheddars and crisps, which I think is the optimal uh, nutrition for anyone dealing with a crisis uh, situation. That was brilliant stuff. It was really informative to uh, listen to you talk through your journey to the top table. And now what a brilliantly uh, mature mindset you have around that top table and leading the organization forward, particularly on sustainability and the crisis comm side. So thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And it's great to hear that prevention really is better than the cure. Thank you, Emma Tottenham. Thank you. So what a great interview with Emma that was. And I'm glad to be joined by Karen and Gary again to discuss it. Uh, Karen, it was really interesting there. We talked a lot about prevention being better than cure. Now, is that just a good phrase that we use in our industry uh, or is it real? Do we see businesses who try and get in the front foot to be proactive in protecting and enhancing the reputation, doing better in crises? I think for sure. Uh, one of the, the comments that really resonated for me is creating that muscle memory uh, when it comes to crisis response. And so, you know, when you're informing your plan, doing that risk assessment, identifying those scenarios and actions and incidents that are kind of misaligned with your values as an organization that pose a risk to your reputation and identifying those scenarios having a playbook, having a plan in place and actually exercise and testing them, I think is so important so that you have that early identification, you can quickly activate and in most cases, try to get ahead of these incidents before they actually happen. And so to me, it's like being good at identifying the scenarios, having a good plan and being proactive in your communications, particularly if you're facing an issue um, it's so important to be communicating about an incident because, as I've said before, if, if you don't communicate about it, somebody else is going to do it for you. And there's no better person to be the source of information about your organization than yourself. Yeah, you can fill the vacuum. And it's interesting this because a lot of people who do what we do get cast as being firefighters who get called in uh, at the last minute when something's gone wrong. And we're not really. We like to be more proactive than that, don't we, Gary? Yeah, I think there's two elements to this. I think there is, you know, basic issues and crisis preparedness in the sense of Emma talked about flushing out potential issues from across the business, knowing what's on the horizon, being prepared for them, testing, simulating. But I think, you know, in terms of prevention being better than cure, it's, it's about more than that. I think, you know, we know that uh, the general public certain audiences, the audiences that deal with your business, they are more likely to give you the benefit of the doubt in an issue or in a crisis if they have a preconceived opinion about who you are as an organization and what you are doing. Uh, and I don't think we should underestimate the extent to which confirmation bias 
plays into how people respond to um, an individual, a business, an organization that's going through a difficult time. Now, if you're going to um, if you're going to have that sort of relationship with your key audiences, whereby they you know, respect you for who you are as a brand, you're going to have to put some investment behind that. And that's not going to be crisis specific investment. It's going to be broader investment into who you are as a business, what you're doing, taking the time to show the good work that you're doing, demonstrating the purpose of the organization. If you're able to do that effectively and you know that it's resonating with the people that you need it to resonate with, be it customers, stakeholders, employees, then when something does go wrong, you're more likely to get through that than if you have ignored those audiences or frankly, actively exacerbated them through work that you've done elsewhere then when you're in trouble they're going to react much more badly and i think you know people need to understand whenever they're evaluating the risk to the reputation of their audience that proactive communications isn't just a nice to have it's actually essential as a means of responding to difficult times as well i call them reputation chits in the bank and if you need to draw down on them it's better that you have more in the bank than not yeah, and flushing things out is a very smart approach as well, because we all know in crises situations, it's not just one story which causes trouble. It's secondary stories uh, which add on to the top of it uh, and actually really eat into reputational damage. And if you're doing the proactive flushing things out in advance and trying to get ahead of them, you're restricting the number of secondary stories which happen when a crisis does happen. We all know that crises are going to happen. It's about making sure the organization is stronger when they do. And Emma's approach will certainly do that. Well, look, thanks, Karen and Gary. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to Emma for her fantastic interview today. And we will uh, see you all next time on White Swan, the crisis podcast. Well, that was White Swan, the crisis podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please like and subscribe for more at your usual podcast platform. We'll be back soon with more chat from the world of crises. Until then, please don't have nightmares because the proper preparation will ensure that whatever is thrown at you, you'll be fine. White Swan is brought to you by Hanover Communications and its global crisis network. To find out more, please visit hanovercoms.com. That's Hanover, H-A-N-O-V-E-R, comms, C-O-M-M-S dot com. Hanover.